Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope to challenge and equip you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus through these messages from our weekend worship gatherings. We are so glad you're joining us for our summer series at Vintage Church as we examine the life of Jesus through the eyes and experience of his most beloved disciple, John. We hope that you are curious and committed as we take a closer look at Jesus and reflect on what it means to live and love like him. We are here in the book of John again. We are, we are taking a lot of weeks all the way up through the end of September to be in the book of John. And I don't know about y'all, summer for me is a time that even if my schedule doesn't slow down, a lot of times like my, my spirit does. And not in a bad way, but just in a way of I need rest. And it's not because I've had days off or, or anything like that. There's just sort of something that happens. Maybe it's that like, you know, the thing that gets ingrained in you as uh, a student, you know, you always get summer break or as a teacher, you always get summer break. And I think I'm just sort of on that, I'm gonna be on that schedule forever, just taking a summer break. And this series through the book of John has kind of given that opportunity for us to let our, like, our soul like, catch up. And being in the book of John this whole time has really encouraged me, uh, this is a side note here, in my, my personal Bible reading time a lot, I'm a person who likes to check boxes. I am a person who at the end of the year, I want to see how much of the Bible did I read? How much did I get through? And so a lot of times what that means is I read this chapter and then tomorrow I'm going to read the next chapter and then maybe I'm going to read three chapters and I'm just going to all the way through the Bible. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you know, setting goals of reading through the Bible in a year or trying to, to know and hold on to as much of the Bible as you can. But sometimes I need that reminder that instead of moving through so quickly, maybe I need to slow down. Maybe I need to reread some things over and over again. Maybe there's something there that I didn't understand before because I didn't even see it. I just breezed right past it. And so this series has given us that opportunity to look into these, these stories of Jesus through the eyes of his most beloved disciple, John, and really think, why did Jesus do that? What was the significance of this moment? Not just that one moment in time, but how it added up to one big story, one big gospel and good news of Jesus. And so today we are gonna be in John chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app or even our Vintage Church app, you can just hit the notes. Uh, all of the scripture will be there. You can just hold your thumb in your Bible and, and we'll get there in, in just a minute. Um, but we are going to look at an a story that is, is familiar to us. And if you're anything like me, it was always kind of a, a question mark. Like everybody else seems to be acting like this is kind of normal, but I think it's kind of weird. And I wanted to know like, why did John put this here? Why, why does John tell this story? What is the significance in the whole story of Jesus? And John, toward the end of his gospel, well, in the beginning he says that John the Baptist came so that people could believe in Jesus. Well, at the end of his gospel, in the next to last chapter, chapter 20, John lets us know, this is why we're here. 
This is, this is why I'm, I'm writing these stories down for you. He says, I'm writing this so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his whole reason for writing, is so that you will believe because of the stories that John tells that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God. And our, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're told sequentially. They start at the beginning, um, like near his birth or close to his birth and go all the way through the end, through the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. John is different. He's not so much like day one, day two, day three, as much as he is, hey, I've, I've had the gift of time. He writes this much later than the other gospel writers. And so he has that thing that comes with age, the gift of, of hindsight, where you can piece together the things that have happened and see the overarching meaning. And that's the position that he's writing from. And he's saying, look, all of these things happen. He even says, I haven't even written everything down. If I took the time to write everything down that Jesus did, all the books in the world could not contain what Jesus did while he was here on this earth. But I have put these stories together so that you may believe. Now, unlike the other gospel writers, he doesn't trust that you're gonna connect the dots. So sometimes it feels like John is writing on a completely different timeline. Different stories show up, stories show up in different places than they do in other gospels. And that's because he wants to make sure that you don't miss the connection between this thing that happened and this thing that happened. Because if you miss that connection, then you might not believe. You might not see the significance and the significance is so important in your journey to belief in Jesus. And so he puts these two accounts back to back. Last week, we talked about John chapter 11, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. There are these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus who gets sick. And then he dies. And four days later, Jesus goes and raises him from the dead, calls him out of a four-day-old tomb. And then right after that is this account. Now that doesn't mean that this account that we're getting ready to read happened the next day. It could have been weeks or even months between these two events, but John puts them back to back so that we don't miss the connection here. So let's dive in to John chapter 12, knowing that the reason John is writing this to us is so that we might believe and have life in the name of Jesus. Here we go, starting in verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now let's stop right there. Let me explain this scene, let me set it up for you. The other gospels, that tell this story, tell us that they are actually at the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper, who is no longer afflicted with leprosy, uh, is, is actually hosting is at his house this dinner party. But Mary and Martha and Lazarus want to do this thing, this dinner for Jesus, to celebrate him, to say thank you to him for raising Lazarus from the dead. 
So they're at Simon's house and it says that they were reclining at the table. Now, when I have that in my mind, I always think of that scene after Thanksgiving dinner, you know, where you push yourself back from the table and you're laying back in your chair and you probably unbutton your pants because you've eaten so much turkey and you have a turkey baby and there is just (laughs) no room anymore. That's what I have in mind. But knowing the time that this is taking place, they didn't sit in chairs at a table. Their tables were very low to the ground. And the tables on three sides of the tables would have had uh, reclined cushions to lay on in order to eat the meal. And this makes so much sense because we know, like they're, when they sit down for a meal, and they recline for a meal. They're not there just to eat hors d'oeuvres, okay? They're not just gonna have a salad and some breadsticks. They're gonna be there for a while. Meals would take hours. And they wanted to be able to eat as much as possible. So they were really smart. From the outset, they recline. They come up to the table and they lay down and they stretch out so that they can you know, digest all of their food. They're not worried about having turkey babies. <clears throat> So what happens is they're reclining at this table and that front side of the table would be the place where the servants would come and continually place food. Now around this table, there was Jesus and Lazarus. And then we find out later on and in other gospels, the disciples were also there and they are, sorry, they are gathered around and reclining at this table. I am losing my voice as we speak. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Um, So they are reclining at this table. The men would have been in one room and the women would have been in another room. They would not have been eating together. And then something that the story that we've heard and we've heard about for a long time happens. And I always thought when I would hear this story in church, that I was missing something. Because everybody else around me, when they heard this story, seemed like, they're like, oh, this is so beautiful. This is just so wonderful. And I always thought, this is so weird. Is this normal? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I don't understand the context of the time of Jesus. Maybe I don't, maybe they arrive at the portion of dinner, the portion of the party where everybody gets their feet anointed, but that's not, that's not the case. Let's, let's talk about what happens next. Let's continue in the gospel of John. It says, verse three, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Hold on, what now? (laughs) Okay, wiped his feet with her hair. Okay, totally normal, right? So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would still steal part of what was put in it. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now we have the gift of hindsight, as we've said, and sometimes we get so caught up in the symbolism of this gesture and the preciousness of the moment that we forget the physical reality of the scene that makes it real weird. So 
Here's what makes it weird. First, Mary, who's a woman, y'all, she's not even supposed to be in the room, okay? When she entered the room, everybody would have gotten uncomfortable because the men are laying down. They're, they've got their shoes off. They're reclining. It would have been very inappropriate for her to be in the room seeing them this way. So the moment she steps in, because she's not a servant, she's one of the hosts of this dinner. So she steps in and everybody's like, um, uh, can, I, can I help you? <laughs> Is the house on fire? What's going on? Why are you in this room? So that's the first thing, she's, she's in this room. But Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered by it. He's probably the only one who's not like covering his feet up. Um, then she has the next weird thing. She gets on her knees and positions herself as, as a slave would at his feet. Only a slave in a household would have touched the feet of anybody who stepped in, most certainly not the host. And here she is sitting at his feet. Now, I don't like feet. It's weird, okay? Every time you hear the word weird, just put a tally mark. We'll see how many times we say it today. I don't like to touch feet. I think they are weird. They are gross. That is, you've, I don't, you know, they're, feet, okay? And she sits down at his feet, also weird. The next weird thing would have been that she had this very precious perfume, this very costly and expensive perfume that she is, is bringing in. Now, it would have been customary at the beginning of the meal upon entrance of the guest of honor to anoint his head with a little bit of oil to signify that he is the guest of honor. But she takes basically a Dr. Pepper size can, uh-huh, of oil and dumps it on his feet. It is as rare as Dr. Pepper is right now, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, all you Dr. Pepper drinkers. So she takes all of this oil and dumps it on his feet. Now, this isn't like thin, like Wesson oil, okay? This is thick. This is like, almost like... Um, coconut oil, very thick, a whole Dr. Pepper can full of it, dumps it on his feet, and it smells, okay? It is perfume. It's not like some low odor expo marker. It's like this, it says it smells up the whole house. This perfume fills the whole house. So still, still weird, gets weirder. Not only is she in a room full of men, but it says that she wiped his feet with her hair, which would have meant two things. One, that she had to take off her head covering. Now, the only person that would have seen a woman with her head covering off would have been her husband. That's it. Now, ladies, you have, I don't know that I wanna say it. I was gonna say you have, there are things that only your husband sees, okay? We'll just go that, we went there. Lord have mercy. It was the same thing. Her taking off this veil was the equivalent of that. In a room full of men. And then, not only does she take her head veil off, but she lets down her hair. None of these things would have been appropriate or abiding by cultural norms. Guys, none of this was normal. 
Everything about it was absolutely weird. So if you've ever read this story and thought like, this feels weird. Was it normal for people to wipe other people's feet with hair? No, it was not. It absolutely was not. But why did she do this? What did Mary know? What was stirring in her heart that brought her to a place that she would do something so weird, but to Jesus was so precious? What did she know? I think that it tells us more about what she believed than what she knew. She believed in her whole heart that Jesus is everything that he said he was. She had sat at his feet and learned and listened. She knew that it was coming up on the time that Jesus was, was gonna die. And she knew that this is probably the last time I'm going to see him. And so at this point, all bets are off. If you knew the last time that you were going to get to see the person that you love before they die, somebody that has given you everything that you ever asked for and more, and it's the time that he's getting ready to die, you would spare no expense. Nothing would cost too much money. There's no amount of time that would be too much for you to give to that person if you knew this is the last time. And she had to have known because she had to have brought that nard, that oil with her because they were at Simon's house. They weren't at her own home. It's not like she got this like wild hair in the middle of the dinner party and went upstairs to her hope chest and got out this nard to bring downstairs. She thought about this and brought it with her so that she could show this one final act of love to Jesus. Now, Judas criticizes her action. He, he says, hold on. Why are you doing this? This is such a waste. Now he's the one that actually vocalizes it, but the other gospels say that the other disciples, they're thinking it too. Everybody's looking at each other thinking, why is she doing that? What a waste. This is such a waste. And Judas is the one that gives voice to it. And he says, why didn't you sell this? You could have sold this for 300 denarii, which a denarius, one denarius is about the amount of one day's labor. And when I think about somebody who spends one day's labor would be a substitute teacher because there's not much more laborious than walking into a classroom of 24 children that you don't know and don't know you and you try to figure out their names and count their heads all day and teach them some math. That is labor. And here in Randolph County, that's about $80 a day. So you multiply that by 300, it's $24,000. She took $24,000 worth of oil and dumped it out and rubbed it into Jesus's feet. So they're not wrong. That can feed a lot of hungry people, but that's not what she chooses to do with it. And she's criticized for it. They're thinking this was such a waste. Mary, you have wasted our time. You have wasted our decency. You have wasted your money. You have wasted oil. You wasted our party because you reminded us that Jesus is getting ready to die. You have, you, this was a waste. Way to go, Mary. And maybe in that time she, cause she can hear them. It's not like they're all quiet during this time. I know they're and she can hear them. What is she doing? Why is she doing this? And she kept doing it anyway, even though she was criticized. And G Judas criticizes her 
But Jesus affirms her action. It did not make sense to anyone else. It wasn't logical, it wasn't practical, it wasn't socially acceptable. But because she knows this is the last time I'm gonna see Jesus, I need to do this. He sees what she's doing. And the other gospels mention that Jesus gives her a promise in this moment. He says, Mary, every time from here on out, when people share my gospel, they are going to tell your story of how you showed your honor and love to me. And so I think it's really cool that even today, we are in a perpetual fulfillment of what Jesus spoke and promised to her on that day. We remember Mary today for her act of devotion, for her act of love, because that's what Jesus promised and his word always comes to fruition. Now, I do think that if Mary had just done, you know, what was acceptable and put a little oil on his head, that everybody in the room would have been like, oh, wow. Maybe, maybe a little weird that you're in here, but gosh, that's so special. You recognize how wonderful Jesus is and you anointed his head with oil. Oh, that's so precious. They, they would have seen it as fitting. It would have been acceptable. Here's the thing though. People will always prefer that you only be a little bit devoted to Jesus. They are going to be more comfortable when your devotion to Jesus only goes to the extent of putting a Bible verse on your Instagram or your Facebook page every now and then, or maybe saying like, thank the Lord. And it's, that's it. If you go much further than that, people are gonna start thinking that you're weird because they get really uncomfortable when we show our complete and full devotion to Him. It might look crazy from the outside, but we know that in our heart, this is the way that we show love and devotion to Jesus. Now, the, the Gospel of John keeps going in this narrative. We leave the scene of Mary and Martha and Lazarus at the dinner party, move into the triumphal entry. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey and everybody you know, waves their palm branches and lays down their coats so that Jesus can walk into the city and they're treating him like a king. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, because he has drawn a crowd. He has raised Lazarus from the dead and he has done countless other miracles and people are there and they want to believe. Hopes ran very high around Passover. They were always looking for the Messiah. And they thought, maybe, just maybe, Jesus, Jesus is the one, maybe. And so they keep following him with the crowd, a little bit at a distance. And not only were Jews there in the crowd, but there were also people from many different nations and it specifically named some, some Greek people who came to see Jesus. They approached one of the disciples, Philip, and then said, hey, Philip, we wanna see Jesus. And Jesus goes to Andrew and he's like, hey, Andrew, these guys wanna go see Jesus. So then Andrew and Philip go tell Jesus, Jesus, these Greeks wanna talk to you. These Greeks wanna see you. And then Jesus says something in 12, John 12, 23, that he hasn't said yet. He says, Jesus, it says, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Him just saying the hour has come is a big deal because there's been many times that he has told his disciples and told his followers, it's not time yet. This is not my time. My hour has not yet come. And here he is for the first time saying, it's time. 
Everything that I said that I'm here to do, I've either done it or the end is getting ready to happen. The hour has come. And then he says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He starts talking about a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying. And you know, you have that imagery of a plant. We have cilantro in our garden and it has already, this one cilantro plant bloomed, bloomed flowers, and then the flowers turn into these seeds and then the whole plant dies. Well, this one cilantro plant has produced like 50 to 100 seeds in just one plant. Now I could spend a lot of time pruning and keeping that plant from, from bolting and going to seed. But the whole purpose of that plant is to reproduce. The whole purpose of that plant is to use it for a little while and then let it go to seed so that it can produce more plants. And if I spent so much time trying to preserve it, it would defeat the purpose of, of what that plant in its whole life cycle is meant to do. John, in his hindsight, and Jesus speaking here, knows that death will birth exponentially more than anything that we let go of. The goal of our lives is not preservation, but multiplication. We fight so hard sometimes to hold on to those things that are so precious to us, to hold on to our traditions, to hold on to our, our smooth skin. You know, how much money have we spent trying to not age, right? How much money do we put in trying to preserve our lives? How much effort and energy do we put in trying to fight for things that maybe need to die? Maybe dreams that you have where y'all, I wanted to be a country music star, okay? I really did, like I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like Grand Ole Opry, like that was the goal, that was the dream. But there was a point where that dream had to die because it wasn't going to do for the Lord what he needed to do through me. And if I was still trying to pursue that goal, I would not be here today. God had a greater call and a greater purpose on my life. And I think that our lives are so much better spent if, if we spend it giving it away. We spend our lives pouring it out for other people rather than trying to preserve and protect those things that we love because one day we're not gonna be here. And I wanna have something to show for my life. And so when Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll, like, you'll lose it. If you try to hold on to it, it's, it's gonna be gone and, and then you'll have nothing to show for it. But if you hate your life here on earth, you'll have eternal life. And that doesn't mean that you need to self-abuse or hey, like treat your life carelessly or with contempt, but in comparison to the way that we love and pursue Jesus, the way that we show our belief in Him, it should look like we hate what the world would, would consider success. Then Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
We gotta stay close. We have to be where Jesus is. We're always in the room where Jesus is. Matt said in the Easter sermon, I I remember sitting in the room when he was talking and he said this line and when he said it, it took my breath away and tears sprang to my eyes. He said, Jesus has been in every room you have ever been in. And I thought, and a lot of times in our following Jesus, I think sometimes we try to chase him and we're looking like, God, what room are you in? Where do I need to go to follow you? You want me to follow you? Are you in this room? Wait, no, I think you're, you must be over here in this room. No, Jesus is in every room that you've ever walked in. So when we walk into any room, we walk in as a servant to Jesus, no matter what room it is, whether it's your classroom or a boardroom or an office or your living room or your bedroom, you walk into it knowing that Jesus is already there. And he says, if you're gonna follow me and you're gonna serve me, serve me in the room that you're in. You don't have to go find a different room. The people who are in that room where you are, the things that need your attention in that room, you can serve me there. I will be there ready for you to serve me. And so maybe when we walk into any room, whatever room it is, whether you get up in the morning, you walk into your kitchen, you're like, Lord, how can I serve you in here today? How can I serve you in my home today? How can I serve you in my classroom today? How can I serve you in my office today? How can I serve you when I go visit my clients today? How can I serve you as I changed poopy diapers today? God, I am here. I am here to serve you in every single room that you ever walk in. You don't have to look very far to find Jesus because he is right here in the room that you are in. I think he also says that if you love your life, you have to, you have to lose it. If you, if you wanna follow me, you have to lose your life because when you have a lot to lose, you'll hold on as tight as you can. When you have things that are precious and valuable to you, you hold on as tight as you can. But the thing is, is you cannot serve when your hands are full. Devoted service takes empty hands. Or if anything at all is in your hands, they need to be things that you're ready to serve him with. When we believe that Jesus is all we truly need, then we will be willing to give up all we have in order to follow him. In order to believe, we will give it up, we will lay it down, we will pour it out, no matter how ridiculous it might feel or how much criticism we receive from others. And the reason that Jesus asks us that, asks that of us, It's because he knows that he is everything that we need. It's not irrational of him to demand this of us, of us to be his servant, of us to be in all the rooms where he is, of us to be ready no matter what he asks to say, yes, I'm here, I'm on it, I'll do it. It's a gesture of love and consideration toward us because he knows that the best place for us is as close to him as possible. Verse 37 says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. 
Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Many of the rulers believed, but only in secret. They loved their position. They loved their seat in the house. They loved what they had. And they were so afraid of what others would think that they did not confess the name of Jesus. And then you contrast that with Mary. Mary who even after you know, lose, like losing her brother, being made fun of for sitting at Jesus' feet as a scholar, she realized I've got nothing to lose. But if I give everything to Jesus, I have everything to gain because I gain him. And it's interesting that Mary is the one that makes this connection and not the rulers. It's like Isaiah, he prophesied that some people would not believe even though they had seen the signs, these rulers, they'd seen everything. They'd seen the things that Mary saw. They knew about Lazarus. They knew about the blind man being healed. They saw all of the signs and still they didn't believe or not believe enough to confess his name. And when I wonder why, why was it that Mary believed and, and not the rulers? And it dawned on me, it's because proximity matters. Mary found herself at the feet of Jesus at least three times. Once where she sat at his feet to listen and learn. Once when she fell to his feet to grieve after her brother died. And once to anoint his feet in service and in love. She knew that whatever attitude of her heart, whatever emotion or desire that she had, the best place to take all of those things was to the feet of Jesus. She pressed in close every opportunity that she got. But it can't just be about proximity because you have Judas. You have Judas who walked around with Jesus every day, was probably around Judas more than Mary was. He was as close as close can get. So it can't just be about proximity. It's also about posture. Proximity matters but it's not everything because posture also matters. Posture indicates the motive of our heart. When Mary came to Jesus, she came in a posture of submission. She came in a posture of humility, actually kneeling at his feet. Judas existed in close proximity to Jesus, but with a, a posture of, of criticism, of hands crossed or of hand in the money bag close to Jesus because there was something in it for him. And a lot of times we get close to Jesus only because we wanna make sure there's something in it for us. We're cool with being close to Jesus as long as, as, as we're gonna get something out of it. Mary went with no, no such motive. Mary went to pour it all out and asked for nothing in return. And in, but in return, Jesus honored her for generations, for thousands of years to come. Posture indicates our motive. It, it says whether we're here to serve or whether we're here to be served. This is the last time that, that Jesus speaks publicly. 
after, after this chapter, Jesus goes underground and everything else that we know about Jesus from this point is in the view of, of disciples because he spent his last six days just, just with them. So this is his last opportunity to speak publicly. And John records the last thing that he says. He says, it says, Jesus cried out. That means he lifted his voice. He basically shouted this whole thing. He said, the one who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me doesn't receive my sayings, as, has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that this command, his command, is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And with that, he's gone. With that, he says, everything that you have seen in me up to this point should be enough that you believe that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, that if you want to have life, true, lasting, eternal life, you can only have it through me. And that's, that's where we find ourselves today. What do you believe? And not just what do you believe, but what do you confess to believe? What are you willing to say out loud? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a minute. Maybe today there are people in this room who says, I've never believed. I have never, I have never confessed because I don't understand. But maybe something today has stirred that curiosity in you. Maybe today you just wanna say, God, I wanna know more. I, I want you to show me who you are. I want to believe, I want to follow. Maybe you're in this room and, and you say you believe. It's written on your Facebook page. But there are only certain places where you confess his name. When you're in, in, in rooms and in spaces where other people are also believers, then you'll, you'll raise your hands. Then you'll say his name. But my hope and my prayer is that today, this room will henceforth be filled with people who are the few who are willing to lay it all down, to give everything that they have, to serve at the feet of Jesus. That you walk out of this room today with that kind of belief in Jesus. God, we give you this time and we give you our attention. Help us to pay attention to where you want us to move. God, and where you want us to move might be a physical movement lower. God, that maybe we spend more time actually physically on our knees in a posture of submission to you. God, there's nothing that we want more as a church as believers, 
for more people to believe in you. And God, there's no words that I can say to convict hearts or to change lives. That is your work and the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you do your work in this room today. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We hope that what you experience today inspires you to live and love like Jesus. Stay connected with what's happening at Vintage and grow deeper in your faith by downloading the Vintage Church app. Through this app, you have access to sermon notes, upcoming events, devotionals, additional podcasts, and opportunities to connect in community. You can easily download our app by going to app.vintagechurch.net. We hope you join us again soon.